This interview was with our usual team of Gene McCulka, Sawyer Rosenstein, Gina Hurley, and myself, Mark Ratterman. It seems appropriate with the 41st anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing to post it as a special show. The only purpose of the Talking Space podcast is to educate and to inform. The views expressed in this program are the opinions, experiences, and conclusions of the guests. They do not represent the official policy or position of the Space Tweep Society as a whole, NASA, any other space agency, company, contractor, or affiliate. We choose to go to the moon. just right. Our guest is a woman who believes in doing her job just right as well. When she worked for Boeing back in the 60s, lives and our national pride hung in the balance. She was a systems test engineer of the, get this, the Saturn 1C, the first stage of the Saturn V rocket. She was the founder and first president of the Shreveport, Louisiana Astronomical Society with an honors degree in mathematics from Louisiana State University. She's owned and flown her own plane, a Piper Comanche. She's also worked on the Trident nuclear missile submarine. Are you impressed yet? Listen, there's more. She has spoken to the U.S. Navy midshipmen and has been contacted by the Air and Space Museum at the Smithsonian for her participation in the Apollo program. She writes her own blog and has written two books, one published recently. And now with all the formal details out of the way, let me clue you in on a little insider information. Listen close. I spent more than probably three hours on the phone with our guest. She tells me that her husband has said that if you get her started, she'll talk for three days easy. If you ever wanted to swap out someone in your family, maybe an aunt, grandmother, you know, somebody that you wish was different, for somebody that you could sit and drink coffee with and talk to for hours, this is your gal. Let me introduce from Tallahassee, Florida, Sarah Howard. She's our very own space tweep, rocket scientist, and for me, an old friend that I didn't know I had until just a short time ago. Sarah, welcome to Talking Space. Thank you, Mark, and thank you all so much. How did you go through your your higher education and, and end up with NASA? And, of course, we want to hear a lot about Apollo, but uh, just that for starters would be fun. This is really funny. Ne- well... I never worked for NASA. I knew thousands and thousands of people who never worked for NASA. And it's really funny because when I was still in high school, I had the great honor to meet Dr. Werner Von Braun. I have my picture with him. I don't know if you guys know who he is. During Apollo, he was the chairman of NASA, and all the NASA, mm, what do you call it, when they get the, uh, you know, the main people that run everything, uh, the word has slipped my mind, the staff, 
the um, we're all up at Huntsville at Marshall. But anyway, uh, I never worked for NASA because when Apollo started, NASA was a pipsqueak. It was so small, you wouldn't believe it. So what they had to do was hire contractors. There were four main ones. And then they had to hire 23,000 more. I worked for the main number one contractor who is Boeing. All the entire Michoud plant was Boeing, except for the other half, which was Chrysler, a uh, subcontractor for North American Aviation. I have a list of most all the contractors and what we built. But as to the early days, um, I had some great friends in high school. We started in the 50s, guys. That was back in the dark ages. <laughs> I think about that in my life, but the fawns and all that stuff. But anyway, we graduated in 1961. My friends went into all sorts of great, um, you know, um, jobs. Well, they weren't jobs. They were vocations. But anyway, and we're still in touch with each other today. Can you believe that? Well, that's something, that's something, Sarah, that I've, I've picked up on in the last couple of years where I've been able to listen to NASA TV. One thing that the, uh, the space program seems to have a lot of is a great grasp of, of how important teamwork is. And they do a lot of uh, credit to each other, I think, when I, when I hear the astronauts, for instance, or the, or the managers of various missions or departments that are speaking they do a lot of credit to each other. They don't. Uh, there's not a whole lot of. Yes, it was me that I that we associate with things like sports. No, I never saw that either. Because of all the people I met during the Apollo years, it was we're a team. We're going to get this done, and then we'd look around to see if anybody's looking, and we'd take us skip and a hop and we raise our hands to the ceiling and scream, we're going to the moon. <laughs> so it really was exciting. It was a, it was a, uh, you know, a, a job certainly. And it was a, it was something that everybody was really focused on, but I know it surprises me to hear that there was some fun involved. Well, guess what? Every day was a gift. In what respect? That we were doing such an incredible thing. We were prepared to leave this earth and put someone on our moon. We did it. We sent them up. We brought them back. And our Navy brought them home. And have I found some dynamite stories about our Navy. But anyway, did y'all know of the recovery ships? 
I remember seeing them on TV when they would show the uh, Apollo capsule splash down and, and, you know, the crew, of course, and, and bringing the, the, the capsule back on board a carrier. Well, I'm going to be brief on this, and I won't talk about it tonight, but there are some circumstances that came together that were no accident, if you get my meaning. That has a uh, an intriguing sound to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a lot of scientific friends all over the world. In fact, I'm getting emails from England, Scotland, Australia, Japan, and Russia. They all want to know about Apollo. They're really excited, but. <laughs> Some can't speak English too well. But there are things that have come together with Apollo that have saved people's lives. And I don't talk about it too much because I can just hear the general public. You know, there's a lot of things they don't believe. And it's really sad. But another thing, too, I have met a lot of Apollo workers here in Florida. And I bet we have more Apollo retirees than any other state in the nation. I could be wrong, but this is just my impression. They have seen things, too, that would make your hair stand on end. So what I'm saying is there's a lot more to Apollo than meets the eye. But what saddens me today is that I see a lot of people. They're lovely. We have great conversations. And all of a sudden, I say the word physics, their eyes lays over and they fall down in a dead faint. (laughs) I wonder why that is. (laughs) People, the general public are so afraid of math and science and they're so easy because math has one answer on that problem. But of course, there might be several ways to get there, but there's one answer. All my friends in the 50s and 60s, math and science was wide open. There was no talk of, oh, you girls are too stupid, you can't do this. I've never seen that in my life. Well, and maybe I'm sheltered. The only thing I ran into was I asked in my senior year if I could get into the Naval Academy. And the recruiter fell on the floor laughing. He said, women are not, do not belong in our Navy. I said, ooh, excuse me. <laughs> well, getting, getting on, on with, with, with that angle a little bit, um, I, I know you... you you took a relatively interesting approach 
um, as far as your education is concerned, and then all of a sudden you got a, a, a beautiful job with Boeing, work, working with uh, working with one of the most sophisticated pieces of machinery ever ever created. Um, did you feel like you were a, a trailblazer of some sort, or um, you know, for for women in in your uh, in science at that point? No, never even thought of it. I, listen, I have never thought of myself as anything. I'm unimportant, and I don't feel like I'm, you know, the next thing since, I don't know. I have fun. I want to live my life, enjoy people, and have fun. And, boy, did we at Boeing. <laughs> But anyway, um, I have never had to brood on, ooh, people are treating me terrible or they've made bad remarks and all this stuff. The guys I've worked with were great. We had more fun. We had the best conversations. We compared math formulas. (laughs) We looked at our data. The only thing that they did was they tried to hog the data, and Stanley and I had to do some football tackles and say, get out of the way. It's hard stuff, too. So, but, no, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, no, that's it. No, um, so essentially you were accepted pretty much by everybody. There was no, you know, uh, it was no, you know, all the, the this here's this woman, they can't do anything or anything like that. It was just sort of... Well, here's an, just you were just another engineer on the, on the team then. Exactly. Even when I left Apollo and I went to work on the Trident nuclear missile submarine, it was a blast. I worked with the Navy, and then the CIA came in. <laughs> Things were really funny, but I won't go into that. I have always enjoyed myself. Why go around and be a sourpuss and tell everybody how bad you have it because nobody's going to listen? And um, I think other people are so interesting. And I found the gal here, and I'm trying to find out more about her because she's really fascinating. So um, my philosophy is if you act, nicely if you are fun to be around if you make friends with people you will never have any trouble in a job and i never did well speaking of of that of that job um what what exactly was your um uh, duties with the uh with the saturn second stage what, what, what were your responsibilities and uh just what was a typical day like? Okay, well, it was the first stage. Mishu, we had the first stage where we did the whole thing. We assembled the entire stage there at Mishu. North American Aviation made the second stage at Huntington, no, Seal Beach, California, and they barged it over. I brought it, but I don't remember. They were so big, I forgot how they... Uh, got them over. No, they didn't buy either railroad or by 
highway. I don't remember. It came to Mishu, and they put the finishing touches on it. So um, on the first stage, my team and I were called systems test engineers. Systems test engineers. I didn't say that right. Our responsibility was to get these stages on the test stands in Mississippi. And I can't even describe it to you. It is the most unbelievably huge, enormous thing you've ever seen in your life. The stage sits there. They fire it up. We get telemetry from offset Doppler radar. I mean, not offset Doppler. Uh, transducers and all the data comes in the form <laughs> well I can tell you the whole thing but it'll bore you to death it's pan <laughs> PCM single sideband FM FM and a whole bunch of other formats now if you're an electrical engineer you will understand <laughs> well I, I can ask you on that so, so you were getting telemetry from the stage it was sitting on the test stand and you had, it, you had it powered up to where you would get readings as though you were uh, in a flight situation. And that, that, am I right, that enabled you to verify that um, you were good to, to send that stage on to the Cape, right? Perfect. You couldn't have said it better. <laughs> well, yeah. you know, you, you tell me you're a systems test engineer, and um, and I work with electronic systems, and I do a whole lot of, Looking at, at at what it's what it's giving me at uh, at its operation, and did you do a lot of long term testing, or was it short duration tests that you tended to do? Oh no! And let me tell you guys, I wish I could show it to you. I've got video, forty year old video of what we did. Oh my God! I've got video of launches of testing. Every time I show this video, <laughs> people are screaming because the very first section, I've got about 10 or 12 videos, but the very first section I usually show is the firing of our stage. Seven and a half million pounds of thrust. The kids screamed. The midshipmen screamed. <laughs> I love their reactions <laughs> because this is so spectacular. No one has ever seen this before. I got this from another engineer. <laughs> but anyway, so yes, that's what we did. We had different durations for the firings. Our stage had to perform for two and a half minutes. When it lifted the Saturn V, it had the seven and a half million pounds of thrust for two and a half minutes. It took the Saturn V up 38 miles at 6,000 miles an hour. That is a kick in the pants. (laughs) Stop that. Well... For 40 years, I've had a question for the astronauts. Could not reach any of them. 
Long story short, a good friend of mine, through his contacts, contacted one. My question, how was the ride on my beloved Saturn V? The answer came from Alan Dean, and he shouted, Terrifying! (laughs) (laughs) I loved it, I loved it. That was our stage, and we had to make it that powerful to get everybody up out of the atmosphere. And after our stage dropped off, the second stage lit and got us further, and then finally that dropped off and the third stage kicked in, and it had them well on the way. I mean, they were real close by then. But I'm going to tell you something real funny. (laughs) In Apollo 11 and Apollo 12, when the third stage had detached and staged, the astronauts in the command module kept seeing something in the window. And they said, what is that? And the other one says, I don't know, but keep your damn mouth shut because NASA might put us in the nut house if we tell them we saw alien spaceships. <laughs> so, so they went ahead and landed, and they came back. And guess what those things were that they saw in the windows? Were they the ice crystals? stages following them like little puppy dogs. Oh, well. <laughs> That is the power of gravity. Wow. Now, Sarah, let me ask you a question. From speaking with you the other night, you told me that a third stage has been located when traditionally all of the uh, first stage, second stage, third stage, we would expect it to re-enter and burn up. No, they didn't all do that. Um, It's on the Internet. The thir- there is a third stage that's been 40 years up there <laughs> in a very erratic um, orbit <laughs> between the moon and the earth. And there's a great group of people that are keeping track of every object anywhere near us, the earth-moon situation, because we don't want to get hit like Chicxulub. So... They found this thing, and they said, what in the world is that? It's not an asteroid. I'm sorry, y'all. I can't stop laughing. It's so funny. So finally, they gave it letters and numbers, and they realized what it was, and they're keeping an eagle eye on it. (laughs) But the other third stages, NASA, I don't know how they did this. They just slammed them into the moon to see if they could find water 40 years ago. <laughs> now, and here we are 40 I, years later knowing that we have it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but NASA does some really funny things. <laughs> yes, they but, do. And there's an engineer that was talking to me. And he says, you know what we call NASA? I said, what? He says, never a straight answer. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably <Yeah>. right. <laughs> All right, now I have but, a quick question for you also. Sure. Um, one thing I was wondering is, I know it didn't matter gender or not, but 
for all the people since they had never done it before. I know there was a huge learning curve in terms of um, trying to figure out exactly how to build it and how to do it correctly. So how was it trying to figure out the learning curve of building the stage just right so it wouldn't explode and it would get the job done and make it all the two and a half, three minutes? Okay. Uh, Let me see if I can explain this. Um, There were the designers and the creators of rockets. The first one is Werner von Braun and his team from Germany. They had been building and firing rockets at White Sands, New Mexico, years before Apollo started. See, America brought him over here ahead of the Russians in 1945. So he and his team had been out there, you know, uh, learning. Anyway, so when President uh, Kennedy decided we're going to go to the moon, um, there was a lot that happened and rockets blew up and some people couldn't do them and there was got off a mess. Finally, somebody told him, you have got to get Dr. Von Braun. They took him over to Redstone Arsenal in Huntsville. That's where they got started. He and his team designed and tested every part of the Saturn V. He brought his team, and I've got pictures of them, over to Mishu, and nobody was there yet. And they built the very first, first stage. It was amazing. I've got pictures of all this. Uh, Dr. Von Braun wrote a very thick book on rockets and rocketry. So anyway, they built the stage. Next step, they have all the blueprints, all the designs, and all that. They hire a bunch of those genius engineers, of which I'm not one, that know all this stuff. And they did their work, which I did not understand because, anyway, none of our team understood this. So then they got people skilled labor called assemblers, just like the people you see on TV putting cars together, putting airplanes together. They're going by diagrams and blueprints and what they're told. So they assembled the stages. Now, where we were, we watched them. We could not get close. They would scream and curse and throw water on them. (laughs) Engineers never got near a stage. We could not touch them. We could, a couple engineers on our team and I would wait till there was dead silence from the assembly room and they were like gone to lunch and we'd sneak over there and we'd look at our stages hanging from the ceiling. And he would sigh, and I would sigh, because we couldn't get close to him. So anyway, we could only watch with great envy and drool (laughs) as they were being put together. 
but the rest of us had to test everything. Gina, I was just wondering if you had anything you wanted to, to chime in on. Yes, uh, Sarah. Yes. Um, as a woman, and uh, even though you worked with guys and you had great relationships, um, you know, did you have any sense of other women at NASA or in the other roles of Apollo at the time, if if they were as limited in numbers as you were? And you said you and you had a partner, another female uh, colleague who was an Apollo engineer. Um, right. What about, um, you know, software engineers or uh, suit technicians or, um, you know, pad workers or anyone else um, that were women at the time involved in Apollo with the real hands-on stuff? Not at the plants where the rockets were actually assembled, where the stages and parts of the Saturn V were assembled. The only other women we saw were the secretaries and the clerks, a bunch of sweet gals. Uh, the job you are talking about would have been done probably at uh, Huntsville or the Cape. Okay. And we never saw them. So, I mean, you realize television <laughs> wasn't even hardly invented. There was no thing, such things as conference calls. <laughs> uh, hey, you guys got cell phones? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes, we do. Okay. Look at your cell phone or hold it in your hand. Don't turn it on if you got it near. And just look at it. You are holding in your hand more computing power than the entire Saturn V. I'm just letting that sink in for a moment. Wow. Can can I bring up another point, Sarah? This is something that I've uh, I've thought of and actually have some hands-on familiarization with. Here you are, a uh, I'm going to say you're a math genius. I know you've got a degree in mathematics, <laughs> and and at that at that time, math was it not by and large done with a slide rule? You're absolutely right. There are people that do not even know what a slide rule is. And, of course, they can go to Wikipedia, type in slide rule, and you'll see one. And I've used them, and uh, I, I didn't do much with it because it was right at the point where calculators were starting to uh, to show up on the market and, and getting close to being affordable for a student. But uh, how was work like with a, uh, a slide rule and a pencil and paper? This was a different world. Oh, yeah. Well, let me tell you, this is real funny. I remember this. When the calculators came out and I first tried to use one, I got so mad I threw it against the wall. <laughs> I got out my slide rule and I said, to heck with this third thing. This is the pit. <laughs> oh. I hated them for a long time. <laughs> Plus, if your slide rule uh, acted up, you could always use it to stir your coffee, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you guys got a sense of humor. <laughs> 
Not the one oh, my really? dad. Not the not the slide rule my dad had. Bless the thing was like that thing was huge. <laughs> I couldn't use that. You those too. You could you couldn't you couldn't stir coffee with that. I and mean, then you know, <laughs> sure. Wow. How much well, how much of your day did you spend with uh, a lot of mathematics? Uh, were you doing math as a big part of your job? No, because well. In a way, yes. In a way, no. When the data got to us from the test site, which, by the way, is in Mississippi, still there today, NASA's still testing the engines. I love it. But anyway, uh, the data would come in, and it would be on rolls of brown paper with all these squiggles. It was like a... um, so seismograph, but we knew which every every lead uh, represented. So we would get on to the data and look very carefully, analyzing it and see if there was anything wrong. And there was. We discovered engine fires. We'd scream every time we see one of those because you had to chase it down. What caused this fire? Usually it was dripping, leaking either from the fuel tanks or it could have been the pressurization. You know, we knew we used nitrogen and hydrogen as our pressurization. But anyway, we get a leak and everybody screams in rage because <laughs> we got to spend some time. And then when the stage is still on the test stand, if the technicians can get to it, they can fix it. But if they can't, it's a real pain in the butt. They had to take it out of the test stand, load it back on the barge, come west back to Michu where the assemblers could get at it, and everybody's madder in hell. <laughs> but... Oh, I've got a story to tell you, and this is short. We were testing. This was the S1C stage for Apollo 11. It was S1C-6. It is on, it's not the real one, but it's, there's one on display at the Cape. Two of our F1 engines burn up. So we were all screaming. <laughs> we don't know what caused it. The weirdest thing. So anyway, they brought it back to me, shoe, removed the two burn up engines, and put two brand new ones in, and Apollo 11 did just fine. <laughs> It's one of those no. things where so much of uh, of what was happening then was right down to the wire, wasn't it? Well, no, because <laughs> we were real good. We got our stages <laughs> quicker than the other ones. We had so many, we had to put them in warehouses and hang them from the ceiling. <laughs> well, the second stage came from California. And Chrysler put the finishing 
touches on it, and I'm not sure what they did because I went over to the Chrysler side, and it was dead silence, and the guys were on the very top of the scaffolding, and I don't know what in the world they were doing. None of us knew, but um, it wasn't our place to know you didn't ask questions if you get my meaning. <laughs> and then our side was screeches and bangs and <laughs> it was so loud and they were um oh welding the skirts to the frame. Then they had to take the stage over to this gigantic X ray machine, biggest thing I've ever seen in my life. And they would X ray these welds two and three times. And through the years, one time I was walking through there and I looked over and they turned on that damn x-ray and I thought, oh, God, I'm going to go blind. <laughs> but um, anyway, the, the gal that, that asked the question, did I answer you? Yeah, you, uh, you answered the question because I think you were pretty isolated in your working conditions and without modern communication, you probably wouldn't have too much contact with any of the other women working in Apollo. No, and it's sad, but, you know, there was nothing we can do. We didn't have anything. I mean, right. I drove I drove a car with no air conditioning and an AM radio, <laughs> and we had no television because right. we were poor. <laughs> so it wasn't until later that I got to see some things on TV, but this is interesting, Gina, just recently here in Tallahassee, I met a couple of the gals that did work on the cape. Oh, yeah? And, see, we're all old farts now. <laughs> we're grandmothers, and uh, one of them just retired from the state working for the Auditor General. Another one is the head of mathematics, uh, graduate studies in mathematics at FSU. But they never worked on the rocket. They were a, there were about 200 women working in technical and scientific positions for NASA all over. The majority were in Huntsville, but there were some at the Cape. Mm -hmm. So Sally and I were the only two gals working hands-on on the Saturn Five. Now, I always heard, not to totally throw you off, but um, the suit technicians, they literally the seamstresses that put together the spacesuits, which are personal spacecraft for the astronaut together, were quite a hardworking, dedicated group of women. Um, of course, who said they weren't? Yeah, I, I, think, I think they actually... Um, there's been a lot, I think, either written or I've I've seen some stuff on TV about them, which has been quite fascinating because basically they had to invent it all, put it all together, figure out how it was all going to work, and uh, test it. And they obviously did a phenomenal job. Absolutely. They got uh, suits today from what those ladies did. Listen, I applaud with great glee. Any woman who excels in science 
or math skills. Because today I talked to the girls. <gasps> we can't do that. It's too hard. And <laughs> I don't know what to do. Knock them silly or walk away. <laughs> mm. But I think that this math science thing has probably all been around this country since it was founded. Um, a lot of women believe what they're told, that they're stupid and they can't do this job and let us, get out of the way and let us men do it and blah, blah, blah. Do you know it was just recently that the U.S. Navy allowed women to fly jets on their carriers? Uh, yeah, I think that's what, been about 10 years, 10 or 15 years now. Yeah. And I can remember when women weren't even allowed in the Navy. Mm. So we've made strides. Now, one thing that burns me up, have you watched the preparation for the launches or seen them on TV when they're on the station? Oh, sure. Do you notice almost every mission has the token woman? Uh, you mean on the flight crew? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm thinking, well, why don't we girls put a crew together and show these guys what we can do? <laughs> it was a, what, a year and a half ago when Peggy Whitson, who was the first commander of the space station, was joined by Pam Mulroy, commander of the space shuttle, and when the shuttle docked with the state. For the first time, there were two women in command. I thought that was a, that was obviously a great first. And Peggy Whitson came home and took over for Steve Lindsay as chief of the astronaut office, a post she currently has right now. Since Steve Lindsay graciously bowed out to be the last commander of the last shuttle flight, and so I mean, I, I think that's phenomenal. I mean. She has obviously has quite a job ahead of her because she's got to recruit the next uh, group of astronauts who, you know, going back to the moon or to Mars, this isn't going to be your typical group of um, throttle jockeys as they once were in the Mercury days. These, these will have to be doctors and mechanics and biologists and, uh, you know, maybe even psychologists on long-duration missions. I think it's phenomenal that a woman's at the helm of it because there's a lot of um, there's a lot more dynamic that's going to have to come into play to put these crews together, and uh, I, I I think they got the right person in charge. That's super. I'm so glad. That's wonderful. Well, I want to thank you all for being so nice. It is wonderful to talk to people who are smart, understand space and science, and I have been in a desert for 40 years, and I feel like I'm going to the Green Valley. So once again, thank you for coming on. Now, if people want to keep following you, you have a blog, am I correct? Yes. It is um, 
inside the Apollo Project.com. All right. And once again, there will also be a link to that in the show notes. So that way, when you're listening to the episode, you can click on it there as well. And if I'm correct, you were also writing a few books. It's about astronomy. It's for sale on Amazon. And the name of it is The Biggest Explosions in the Universe. And I explained uh, gamma ray bursters, black holes, and a whole bunch of stuff. And it was written for young adults. And then my second one, something funny happened on the way to the moon. All right, great. So we'll definitely keep an eye out for that second one. Looking forward to reading that. And if we want to read your updates on Twitter, your Twitter name, if I am correct, is Sarah1861. Correct. I tried to change it to Sarah Howard, and I couldn't get it changed. I don't know how to do it. But and my blog is a mess. I don't know how to get that straightened out either. I just went ahead and put all the posts one after the other. And I don't, I don't know. I got to get somebody to help me on that because I see these beautiful blogs and they're all organized and mine's a junkyard. (laughs) But if you look around, you might find something that interests you. Well, anyway, thank you all again. And I apologize for keeping you so long. It's all good, Sarah. We enjoy we enjoy the time, and again, the door's always open for you if you ever want to come back. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, Sarah, and thank you very much, Mark Ratterman, for taking the helm and hosting this episode, as well as editing it. Now, before we go, there's just one thing that we want to add. Since the 41st anniversary of Apollo 11 is rapidly approaching... We will be doing another audience participation show using Twalkin. That's Twalk, T-W-A-L-K, dot I-N, where using your Twitter account, you can just sign in, call in, and that way we can put you on the show, and we want to hear about your memories of Apollo 11 and some other stories. If you would like more information on this and you would like to participate in the show, please drop us a line at mailbag at TalkingSpaceOnline.com and we'll send you all the information necessary. Once again, thank you for listening and have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are. <laughs>